0: Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Hope as an Anchor of Our Souls, was given on June 7th of 2016 by Ellen R. Harker, than the BYU Associate Academic Vice President for Research and Graduate Studies. I've learned one thing in the last five minutes, and that is it's easier to sit on this side of the podium than that side of the podium. Uh, I would also like to share one personal observation. Uh, I I have been associated with seven different universities over the course of my career. In my experience, there is nothing even remotely similar to what we do here today at any of those other institutions. It is remarkable what we do here each Tuesday morning. We share our testimonies, we share our experiences, and I am grateful for all that I have learned from all of you as I have attended devotionals over the last 22 years. What I add today to that library of devotional wisdom is not new. I am acutely aware that I am merely revisiting truths that, I, that have been taught by many others with different words, by different means, and through different personal experience. The seeds for my thoughts were planted more than a year ago as we came to the end of a successful family reunion. Even though our children were all grown, we as parents—as their parents—feel some misplaced obligation to be the last flight out, seeing them all off safely. This usually gives my wife and me some extra time to visit more adult attractions while waiting for a later flight. Our preference seems to be for art museums. We chose a museum not too far from the airport where one of the traveling exhibits happened to be 16th-century engravings. My general lack of enthusiasm or appreciation was probably brought on by equal measures of ignorance and fatigue. However, these were tempered by the observation of a theme throughout many of the engravings. Series after series depicted the seven virtues, and the seven deadly sins almost all contain precisely the same compositional elements derived from Scripture. And here is the first seed that was planted, a representation of hope. I can't confirm that any of the images I will show you today were in that particular exhibit. These were obtained from the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. There are, however, commonalities to everything that I saw there and all of these portrayals of hope. There is always a young woman looking longingly towards heaven, perhaps envisioning a brighter future in this life or in the next. There is always the symbolism of the anchor, which is referred to in Scripture in numerous places, but none so directly as in Hebrews 6.19 which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. I have always been curious about hope, how we obtain it. It's something that we all desire. In scripture, it's sandwiched between faith and charity, always, and I hope to address, if not answer, some of those questions today. I wish to dismiss, rather quickly, two worldly notions regarding both hope and anchors. Hope, in the scriptural sense, is not wishing. We use the word far too often in that shallow context and thereby confuse ourselves into believing that hope is a transitory state which can be achieved in times of duress through mere desire or anxious longing. This is not the hope that is both sure and steadfast. Neither are anchors dead weight meant to slow us down or impede our progress. The proper use of an anchor is paramount to safety on the water. Although, having hoisted a few anchors myself, I can fully appreciate that this young lady, although still gazing into heaven, perhaps waiting for that elusive answer to that last last final exam question, has chosen to use the anchor for support rather than hold it forever. So now a story about anchors. In October of 2000, my wife and I and two of our three children were living in Christchurch, New Zealand. BYU had provided us with a generous development leave and we had made our home in a quaint bungalow. Quaint means old, cold, drafty, damp, It was adjacent to the University of Canterbury, where I was working with a colleague who was to become a good friend. We had been there a little over three months when one of New Zealand's fabled storms came roaring in out of the northeast. It smashed into our little neighborhood, flooding the local schools and uprooting trees and sidewalks. We had been so charmed by the garden-like nature of Christchurch that we were distraught At the wreckage around our home. As an aside, those of you who are familiar with Christchurch know that they have in recent years suffered several major earthquakes whose aftermath has unfortunately eclipsed our little-experienced disaster by orders of magnitude, and our prayers are still with them. During our October storm, however, The most devastating effects were wrought on Littleton Harbor, just to the southeast of Christchurch. The marina at Littleton was almost completely destroyed—millions of dollars in damage to boats and infrastructure. As we followed the news reports and developments, I was most intrigued by the stories of those vessels that survived the storm and how their owners had affected that survival. As the storm developed, these experienced men and women were intently watching the barometer, and when it began to drop precipitously, they rushed to their boats and headed out to sea. This was entirely counterintuitive to my limited experience. I would have thought that my boat would have been safest in this picturesque harbor tucked in a deep water inlet in the hollow of an ancient volcano behind a sizable rock jetty. But not so. The boats that left the harbor were among the few vessels that successfully weathered the storm. They went to sea and dropped an anchor, not just any anchor, a storm or a sea anchor. In the spirit of using old manuscripts and engravings, I found this in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration photo library. In the lower left of this image you see a number of versions of early sea anchors. The illustration towards the lower middle is a a bit truncated because the lead, called a road, would be much longer, buffering the interplay between the boat and the anchor. This is clearly not a new invention, although the materials and technology have improved over time. As you can see, storm anchors are basically underwater kites or parachutes. There are multiple purposes to this type of anchor. Even in a substantial storm, it prevents the vessel from becoming significantly moved from its initial position. A boat that gets turned sideways in high seas is apt to capsize and founder. This anchor allows the vessel to maintain stable orientation relative to prevailing winds and the predominant waves. The differential movement between the tethered vessel and the underlying waves yields a more responsive rudder, allowing the ship to navigate changes in the oncoming waves. And lastly, The anchor prevents the vessel, caught on a very large wave, from sliding headlong down and crashing into the next. I am sure it is apparent to all of you where my metaphor is taking us. Real hope, based on eternal principles and spiritual experiences, is an anchor to our souls intended intended and capable of having precisely the same effects. In the storms that will descend on our seemingly safe harbor of home, family, church, and career, real hope grants us stability, affirms our orientation, and allows us to steer through those troubled waters with measured progress. So where do I procure these anchors against the storms of life? I would really like to give them as Christmas presents to my children and grandchildren. Sadly, they cannot be purchased in the way that the world purchases goods and services. Instead, I will share with all of them, my children and grandchildren, and all of you, my favorite scripture. This is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Here, Paul describes the process by which we gain that hope, which is real and eternal. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. The first thing that we notice is that this is just a normal learning cycle. I've seen this in my children. In myself and in most of my students here at BYU, the greatest learning opportunities come in that chaos and confusion of a failed experiment, a clash of ideas, in moments of doubt. It comes in the recognition that we do not know all things, that our preconceived notions are perhaps incorrect, and that the acquisition of knowledge is not a matter of memorizing facts and figures. In my learning cycles, personally, patience is always the hardest part. It is the long, hard slog through data, experiencing misguided assumptions and repetitive failures. It is the careful attention to nuance and detail. It is a matter of great and continual effort. And we repeat this cycle over and over and over again adding to our knowledge, understanding, and confidence. Confidence, by the way, is merely the worldly version of hope. But Paul is not speaking of worldly or secular knowledge here. He is speaking in a spiritual sense, which is clearly taught in the foundation he lays for verses 3 and 4 that I have not yet shared with you. In verses 1 and 2, he gives us a clear understanding of the critical element that makes this not just a worldly endeavor, but a spiritual one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Paul, speaking spiritually, is affirming that my hope, real hope, that anchor of my soul, both sure and steadfast, is only to be found when it has its genesis in my faith, in my faith in the Savior. Paul is also telling me something I didn't necessarily want to hear—that the storms in this life are a necessary part of our progression. They represent a progression in our spiritual knowledge and understanding that is just as sure as our acquisition of academic knowledge. The cycle is the same. Why should we think that it would require any less effort? Why do some—or many in our our day and age—propose that if God were real, if Christ had been his Son, if the Restoration had been all that important, all of this would be self-evident, rendered to our full vision, without effort on our part? That is not how this works in any aspect of our lives. When confronted with tribulation and trials, we rely upon our faith to keep us in the path facing the right direction. We then call upon the Lord for assistance and succor. We wait patiently for the hand of the Lord to be revealed. We recognize promises have been kept, sustained, even when that sustenance, comes in a form or time that is remarkably different than we have envisioned, requested, or expected. As we traverse round after round of this spiritual learning cycle, we gain experience in the application of our faith, experience in waiting on the Lord, experience in being obedient, experience in understanding His ways, experience in being blessed, experience in feeling the quiet whisperings of the Spirit, experience in feeling our Savior's love for all of us and all of God's children. In each new experience, we fashion a new anchor of hope that we plant firmly around us. These spiritual anchors have amazing properties that sea anchors do not. They are additive. They can be numerous, and as long as we remember them, they are permanent. They are deployed one by one over a lifetime. They grant stability, direction, safety, and hope—real hope—for the future, not only in this life but in the life to come. We all know people—individuals or families— That seem immovable in the face of overwhelming tragedy. They have suffered much, usually with a quiet dignity that belies the tumultuous storms of emotion, disappointment, fear, and grief that may rage beneath the surface. They are amazing. They have been through this spiritual learning cycle over and over again. These are people who have forged the anchors of hope from the materials of experience testimony, covenants, and service. I have often wondered about my personal capacity to weather significant storms. My eternal companion and I have managed to face together most of what life has thrown at us with some degree of grace and persistence. The poverty of being married in school, graduate school, the failed job search, Employment that ended prematurely. The family car that caught fire and burned to the ground. <laughs> chronic health issues. A miscarriage. I saw these as difficulties common to all mankind and their solutions perhaps as equally common. My mother-in-law was always of a different mind. She claimed I was the luckiest person in the world because she had never That I was (laughs) the luckiest person in the world, yes, because it seemed that all of our trials evaporated over time. Her perspective caught my attention, and I began to be more cognizant of the process by which resolution arrived. I began to see the hand of the Lord in so many aspects of our development as a couple and as a family. I became acutely aware of Paul's cycle of spiritual learning. Still in the back of my mind, I was waiting for the real storm to arrive and wondered if my anchors were sufficient. On July 14, 2010, a grandson was added to our family. Jonah was born with treacher Collins syndrome. This is caused by a single, dominant mutation which variably affects late-stage craniofacial development. As we learned more about his condition and the surgeries that would be required to restore some of his underdeveloped capacities, I thought that maybe this was the real storm. Despite these difficulties, however, Jonah turned into a brilliant, bright star in our lives. A bone-conducting hearing aid allowed him to hear until the time that a surgery would repair his outer ears. He was bright and generous and kind. Jonah relished all those challenges that faced every other child his age, mainly those of trying to reach those highest of heights. When Jonah was 14 months old, he passed unexpectedly from this life not from any complication from the surgeries that he had faced or his general condition, but by a random series of events that are commonly avoided by every toddler almost every day of their lives. He inhaled a fruit snack that, despite all valiant and professional effort, could not be cleared from his airway. In the moments after I received the call from my wife that Jonah had died, I sensed the coming storm the rapid drop in the barometer, and the desperate need to head to sea. It was, however, not my anchors that were to be tested, but those of my daughter and her good husband. For parents, this is almost harder to bear because you are no longer at the tiller. You're not directly engaged in the struggle. Jonah's life and our experiences with him are special and sacred, but not unique. I fully recognize that there are in this room today, and amongst those who are listening, diverse histories of tribulation that have required you to patiently lean on the Lord, to learn by bittersweet experience, to have hope and eternal promises. Many of these histories enrich our lives as they are shared. Many remain lovingly and carefully conserved deep in our hearts. My daughter chose to process her incredible grief by writing. She wrote honestly, very publicly, and prolifically for over a year about her grief, sorrows, triumphs, and hope. It is no coincidence that we began the devotional today with the hymn, Lord, I Would Follow Thee. This has become one of my favorite hymns, and almost the most difficult one for me to sing all the way through. This is because my daughter adopted a line from the second verse as the title of her blog, In the Quiet Heart is Hidden. I quote with her permission a good portion of her very first entry because it so poignantly illustrates the elements of Paul's learning cycle, faith, tribulation, patience, experience, and hope. I trust that you will hear each of these elements in her words. It is entitled, A Month Without Jonah. A month ago, I was just like you, going about my life, busy schedules, plans, trying to be a good wife, mother, sister, daughter. I loved being a mom, but occasionally felt overwhelmed by the constant job of motherhood. In a moment, my life, my relationships, my purpose, and my job changed. The moment I knew Jonah was leaving this earth was the moment I felt my faith and everything I believed in being ripped away from me. I questioned everything. I have wept every day since he died, and I wish I could hold him again. As I have cried and prayed and sought answers, I have found some truth and so much comfort. I am not yet at the point where I am grateful for this trial, although I believe that can happen, but I am grateful for what I have learned. I was with Jonah when he died. I watched him choke and struggle and slip away from me. That memory is so vivid that I feel it happening again every time I close my eyes at night. I see it, I feel it, and it causes a rush of adrenaline to flood my body. It has been horrifying each night, and I know this memory is coming. But each night I pray to God to comfort me, to give me peace, and the peace comes like a warm blanket wrapped around me, and I sleep. I prayed that God would help me let go of that memory, and I felt impressed to write it all down, every detail, in my journal. I did that yesterday and last night I laid in bed without my heart and mind racing at peace. I believe that life is full of trials and none of us will escape hardship or death. I also believe that God is a God of miracles. Almost instantly I was able to see small miracles in the experience of losing Jonah. But I found myself saying, God, that is not the miracle I wanted. The miracle I wanted was for Jonah to be restored to health, to live. On the surface, it seems that such a miracle would have done more for our faith than this experience of trying to make sense of his death and grieving. Over the past month, as I have studied the scriptures and have thought about this, I have found many examples of people who saw angels or incredible signs from heaven, only to doubt them later. I can relate to that. After Jonah's funeral, there was a beautiful rainbow that arched over our home. It instantly felt like a sign to me—almost perfectly biblical—a sign of peace and promise. But I felt myself doubted as well. Perhaps the rainbow was a coincidence simply a natural occurrence. I wanted another sign to back that sign up. I I can see how relying on signs and miracles becomes an addictive game. On the other hand, the slow and steady work of praying for answers and comfort is a refiner's fire. As I have worked at grieving and understanding, I felt a steady strength that I cannot deny. I cannot say it is a coincidence. I can only say that it is the love of my Heavenly Father that he sends me comfort and helps me get out of bed each day. I don't understand why this happened, but I know that God loves me and is sending me small miracles each day. Sometimes believing is seen. I am most grateful that my children have made the necessary effort to forge anchors of their own, anchors made through years of experience with the Atonement and our Savior's love. My daughters' expressions of desperation and comfort, grief and hope are universal. They are mirrored perfectly in Paul's exhortation to the Romans. The individual circumstances will change, but we will all experience this spiritual learning cycle over and over again so that we might know the good from the evil, experience joy and sorrow, sickness and health, that we might seek solace in the Atonement offered by our Savior and Redeemer. Our tribulations come in various forms—death, chronic pain, financial hardship, infidelity, divorce, the prodigal child, addiction. The sources are innumerable. But it is precisely the universality of our experiences that allows Paul to foresee the consequences of our faithful and spiritual acquisition of hope. This is found in a subsequent verse that I have likewise withheld. Verse 5. I'm going to begin reading from verse 3, which we just went by. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. With our anchors of hope duly deployed, we are prepared to more carefully listen to the promptings of the Spirit. We are prepared, through our humble understanding of the Atonement and God's love, to offer a reflection of that love to all around us. This is charity, that through our words, actions, and service, the love of God is shed abroad as we proclaim our unashamed testament the reality of His being, our Father's love for each of His children, and His promise of redemption and eternal life. The Holy Ghost then bears witness to the truthfulness of that unashamed testament. In following this, new, this pattern, a new property of spiritual anchors begins to emerge. Each of us begins to share our anchors. Mine become yours, and yours become mine, and we are all strengthened together against the oncoming storm. Inspired prophets, seers, and revelators have urged us to this end from the beginning and still do to this day. Paul's words are perfectly summarized by Nephi. Press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God, and of all men. Paul has so simply and eloquently instructed us in the process by which faith, hope, and charity are linked inexorably to our eternal progression and well-being. May we each embrace the storms in our life, having faith in our experience with that one anchor, sure and steadfast, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. This is my prayer in His holy name. Amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage by study and by faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer.